The anime business, like like all entertainment, is really a fashion business. Uh, what's fashionable right now could be, you know, less than popular a year from now. Why are Nike's Chunky Dunky sneakers selling for $6,000 on eBay? How did Mickey Mouse find his way onto a face mask? Exactly how did all that Stranger Things gear land into my shopping cart? We explore what makes you click buy on the products that stand out above the rest thanks to a little thing called brand licensing. Welcome to The Licensing Mixtape, a podcast by License Global. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Licensing Mixtape, a podcast by License Global. My name is Stephen Extract, and I'm the brand director for the Global Licensing Group and Informa Markets. Today, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, John Parker, CEO of Potencio Development. Welcome, John. Thank you. I'd like to tell our listeners that uh, I've known John about 20 years, and I consider John to be a really good business friend and advisor to me. So I'm thrilled that, John, that you agreed to join us on this podcast. Oftentimes, I uh, have people refer to me as an industry expert, as a guru, or at least as someone who's been in licensing for a long time. I have to say, part of that expertise that I've developed is um, from people like you, John. John has really been a tremendous help for me in understanding the Japanese market, the anime and manga market, the collectibles marketplace. He's always someone I can turn to for advice, for information. And so I'm really delighted that John is going to be joining us today and sharing his knowledge with us. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Um, I actually started um, my career in uh, retail uh, back in the day when uh, you could buy entertainment in a package, like a CD or a, a videotape or a DVD. And that retail experience that I did for, I don't know, something like uh, 10 or 15 years led me to, um, led me to Asia. And I, I ran a, uh, a retail and distribution operation in Hong Kong and later in Taiwan and li- lived over in Asia for five years. And after my experience in Asia, I, I came back to California and I uh, became the president of uh, Tokyo Pop, a manga publisher, manga being uh, Japanese comics. And that was my first introduction really to entertainment coming from Japan, although I had been selling some of it when I was in Hong Kong and in Taiwan. And after a number of years of being in the uh, manga publishing, the comic business, uh, 12 years there at Tokyo Pop, I realized that the internet was uh, about to roll over the comic business, at least I thought at the time. And after seeing that happen, in the music and the video business, I decided to get into uh, pop culture collectibles. And I subsequently joined uh, Diamond Comics as their head of development, which led me to a few other positions in distribution. But now having worked in Japan for roughly 20 years, uh, I could say that it's such an awesome place. And anime, of course, has become such a, a basis for the most popular contemporary entertainment for young people that I'm, I'm really having a good time in my consulting practice at Potencio Development to not only help American companies that are trying to source that entertainment, but to help uh, Japanese and Chinese companies uh, bring their products to America and to the West. John, when I first met you, which was roughly, I don't know, around 2000, 2001, you were president of Tokyo Pop. And I remember coming to LA and meeting with you and Stu Levy, who's the founder of Tokyo Pop. I have to say it was a really exciting um, time. It was really exciting to meet you guys and learn about your business. 
Tokyo Pop was one of the first U.S. companies to kind of recognize the wave of uh, of manga and anime coming out of Japan and to bring it to the United States. And it was um, really quite interesting, particularly when I thought back to my childhood and thought about the cartoon that was really big when I was a kid, which was Speed Racer. Or even my favorite, uh, Gigantor or uh, Kimba the White Lion. Right, exactly. So, so John and I are of a certain age and... And we were both young kids in the 60s, and some of the cartoons on television in the 60s were based on Japanese programming. It was the, you know, what we today would call anime. Uh, And so it began really making a resurgence in the late 90s uh, and early 2000s. And in particular, I think that was interesting because when you think about Pokemon, which first came to the U.S., in the late 90s as well. Four Kids Entertainment brought Pokemon to the U.S., and that was just a huge hit and opened up a lot of doors for more Japanese properties, of course. You know, there's always been a fan base for manga, which are the graphic novels and comic books that are very complex and what most anime is created from. But I remember uh, you guys at Tokyo Pop, you and Stu, really tutoring me about the business, and I remember thinking how fascinating it was. And in a few years' time, it really became sort of the darling of the entertainment licensing business in the early to mid-2000s. I remember probably by 2004 or 2005, you know, Licensing Expo, I think, you know, some of the, the Japanese companies were really kind of the stars when it came to entertainment licensing. And it, it was really just kind of swept across America. And certainly Pokemon was a big uh, a big driver of that. And it's never gone away. It's, it's always been with us. It's just matured here in the West a bit. But I'm seeing certainly more new resurgence. I, I guess that's got to do with so many of the streaming video platforms that are available now. Why don't you talk a little bit about manga, anime in the U.S.? Talk a little bit about uh, how you were involved in that. And then you can talk, tell us a little bit about how you transitioned. I know you transitioned over to Diamond Comics, which is the leader in wholesale distributing to retailers around the U.S. I believe they're global, John. Is that right? Well, I I had been the the president of uh, Bluefin Distribution, subsequent to when I was at Diamond. And over a three and a half year period, we expanded the company, you know, in an enormous way. And our primary uh, manufacturer that we were selling products for at the time was Bondi. And Bondi saw the success of the company and the progress that we made in establishing a professional distribution operation and sales organization, putting in an ERP system, buying our own building, and they decided to buy the company. And when they did, you know, as a lot of Japanese companies do, they like to put their own people in there. So so I left and I decided that uh, at the time, this is about three years ago, I decided that from what I had observed, there was a lot of companies that needed help in bringing their product to uh, to America, primarily from Japan and from Europe. And so I started talking to different people in my network, and my, my network is pretty um, extensive. I, I've worked on building it up over a number of years. And so I did some traveling to, to Japan, to Hong Kong, to, to Europe, back when we could travel. And uh, I found out that that there was a lot of companies that would benefit from the assistance of of not just um, sales and distribution, but also brand development, brand management, marketing. And those are the things that really uh, are endemic to my personality that I really like to do. And so I've, over the last couple of years, I've been working very closely with a handful of companies to help them do this. John, would you say that most of these companies are looking for distribution in the U.S.? Is that their goal? Are they looking for global distribution? And and are they looking for you to help them with their brand licensing? 
um, which is really kind of an area of expertise for you. What's the nature of most of the work that you're doing? Well, the 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 smart companies, at least in my view, outside the United States, they realize the size and the scope of our markets and our in our country, and they they kind of have a couple of different choices if if they want to expand. And and obviously the reason why they want to expand is because they're successful in their home country. If they want to come and, and grow their business outside of, and let's just use Japan as as the key illustration, is if they want to grow their business outside Japan, they they have to go to say the United States and set up an office, hire a sales team, hire management, and then work to build their business here. Now they they can outsource that business to a company like say Bluefin or to uh, Diamond Comics, but they're limited by the focus of one of those distributors. And so if you're a small operator and you're only going to do, say, a few million dollars in America, then that makes a lot of sense because the the risk and the cost of establishing an operation in America is pretty significant. But but if they believe that their their potential is a lot larger and there's quite a few that do, then it's worth it to them to set up their own their own office here, maybe even their own facility to do the distribution. But even in that case, they still have to hire the people. They've got to develop the relationships with the key retailers, and they've got to put together the the social uh, social media and the marketing and the the uh, fan convention operation, like you you were mentioning when you were talking about San Diego Comic Con, and those are all separate businesses all in all to themselves. There's certain expertise that's needed in order to be successful and and operate in any of those particular silos. John, I want to get back to talking specifically about Japan, because to me, after 22 years in the licensing business, and prior to the licensing business, I was working in both entertainment and consumer electronics media. Japan just has so much incredibly rich content that's been explored globally, been hugely successful, whether it be manga and anime, video games, or just brands in general. You know, when you think about Japanese brands like Sanrio with Hello Kitty, what they've done, I mean, it's a global phenomenon. When I think about Nintendo, it's an incredible phenomenon. And it's a company that just goes from strength to strength. When you think about Pokemon, this is a brand that gets stronger and stronger and stronger every single year. And it's 20, 30 years old, but it just keeps getting stronger and stronger. Uh, so I know you, you're you doing business in Japan, and it's a, it's complicated for Westerners because of the culture. Obviously, every culture differs. There's differences that we have in the U.S. versus U.K., but we're probably more closely aligned in our cultural similarities with the U.K. than we would be in cultural similarities with Japan. So in dealing with Japan, it's it's very different. And, for example, um, when I was younger, I was very fortunate. I had a dad who was a publisher who published magazines in the consumer electronics business. And so I was exposed to Japanese culture from the time I was a child. My dad actually took me on trips to Japan, and he would entertain many Japanese executives in our home as well. So I learned about Japanese culture early on in my career, but I'm still fascinated by it and how the Japanese do business. So let's talk a little bit about that. I think over the years, you've become somewhat of an expert in that. And it's important for our listeners who may be looking to do business in Japan. They may be looking for IP from Japan to bring to U.S. or Europe, or perhaps they're looking to take their IP to Japan. So let's talk a little bit about the cultural differences and, and how to work. How, how does one work in Japan, John? You know, you're, you you had such a great introduction there from your dad. I didn't I actually didn't know that story. You hadn't told me that before. That's uh, that's such a fun way to to learn. I've taken my sons to, 
to uh, different places around the world. And and I, and I know when I'm I can explain stuff to them through my own lens, through my own experience for whatever it is, um, it could be uh, that much more rewarding for them and for me. But you know, you're introducing me as an expert, and wh- one of the things I've learned of, about when I was living in in Hong Kong and later in Taiwan and now working in Japan is is I never want to be perceived as an expert. There's always something new to learn. And uh, I can't change the fact that I'm not Japanese. And so I'm not Chinese. So when I'm, I go to one of these countries, I always think like, like, okay, I'm a foreigner here. I have to figure out how to do things in the local way. And so, for example, you know, if you go to a meeting in Japan, you're expected to take a gift. And uh, when you go to the meeting and you 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 bow and you drink tea and you ha- hand it over to your host, that, that's just a common practice. Now, if you were to do that here in America, it would seem rather odd, just like it would if you did it in, say, the UK. But that that's a common practice there. Um, additionally, in, in Japan, um, you know, the relationships that that I've developed over over many years, they didn't start off to be really uh really strong. I mean, they were they were cultivated, they were enhanced by primarily by determination that uh, e- even when I went to a meeting and it didn't have an outcome at the end or didn't have the outcome that I wanted, I, I don't give up easily. And so I found that just being persistent, being uh, showing up and being reliable and then being helpful, because occasionally what would happen to me is, is I get an email or a phone call or I run into somebody at a convention or a trade show and they'd ask me, you know, a question about some problem they were having. You know, could I help them out? And so I, I tried uh, to the best of my ability to to always be kind of what I call a good citizen to, to get, you know, not expecting something in return, but but to do a favor for somebody to the extent that I could. And uh, that that seems to have been uh, beneficial because later when when I went back to that same executive or company, I could always get a meeting. They would respond to my email. They answer my phone call. And that was really, really a great thing. And so I think a lot of people think that and I, I don't speak Japanese, by the way, not not very, not very much. And I think a lot of people from America, you know, they think, well, hey, I have a big pile of money. I can go over there and offer them all this money and do the deal that I want to do. And and that's not necessarily how the culture in Japan works. So the 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 relationship is really crucial. And then being person being a person who's going to come through and be uh, be a good custodian of the value of their intellectual property is something that's really important. You and I on our pre-call before we launched the webcast, when we were talking last Friday, we talked about um what you call good citizenship. And I love that concept of of good citizenship as you define it. Basically, it's the building of relationships through sharing knowledge and making introductions and helping one another out. And something that I really, it's really important and um, certainly something that we see a lot of in the licensing business. Um, There's just such a collegiality that folks have um, so many people who've been working in the business, whether for a long time or, or a short time, but um, there's this really um, generous sharing of knowledge. And I, I, I think it's terrific and I really applaud it. Um, so you and I discussed, you know, that we've been in this business a long time and that 
you know, a big part of the business is building that trust factor. I also love what you said about some of the things that have made you successful, which is your determination and just showing up, you know. So when you think of those three factors, you know, trust, determination, showing up, they're really kind of critical to succeeding in the business, right? So when when we're dealing with intellectual property and more specifically when when you're working with Japanese clients and and Japanese-based properties, it's not a market where you're going to go in and, and just do a quick deal, right? By throwing money around. I mean, it's about trust. It's about that first factor that you talked about in the good citizenship, which is trust. And it's about getting to know the DNA of the properties really well as well. And certainly letting the Japanese companies get to, get to know you. They're going to want to feel that they can trust you and, and they're going to be very protective of their intellectual property for the most part. And I think it's really kind of similar here in the U.S. and in Europe as well. What we find here in the West is that general licensing business, most IP owners are very careful about who they do business with. Probably what makes our business unique in that we will never be a business where you can just go online and bid for a license, right? Over the years, there's been a number of companies that have tried to launch online marketplaces for licensing industry, and they've never been able to succeed. It's quite simply because someone anonymously behind a computer screen is not going to be able to secure a license based on simply bidding. A licensor, a property owner, or or their representative, an agent, wants to be able to look you in the eye and know who you are and know that they can trust you with their intellectual property. I think it's really simple when you're talking about Japan, but this is something I really enjoy about our business, the personal aspect of how we transact. One thing I've seen over the years in my dealings with you and then your determination and your trustworthiness, you exercise that good citizenship, which is why I'm so thrilled to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Let's just talk a little bit about one of the areas of your business that's super popular right now, and that's anime. Share a bit with our listeners who may not be familiar with anime. What is it? Who makes it? How do I identify and evaluate franchises? Can you share some of this information with our listeners? Well, yeah, thanks a lot, Stephen. So the, the the way that anime is developed is it's a derivative of manga, manga being the Japanese comics. In the world of comics, you have superhero comics in America, you have Bandazane in Europe, and then you have manga in Japan. But in Japan, when uh, an artist comes up with an idea for a manga, they'll do a chapter and it'll get published in a magazine, like say Shonen Jump is a pretty popular magazine. And obviously this is a business model that's been around for uh, many years. Once that that manga is published in in the magazine and it starts to build up uh, a following, then it'll get published in a graphic novel or in Japanese, what they call a tankoban. And and if you go to any bookstore, say Barnes and Noble or the like uh, in America, you'll see these these manga graphic novels in trade paperback form. So so once a, uh, a title then starts to build even further momentum and have multiple graphic novels, uh, paperbacks published, then it starts to gain an audience or a an interest from other entertainment uh, formats. And, and the, the most successful ones, most successful titles will then see a consortium form. So for example, that consortium will have a, uh, an anime producer, it'll have a video game producer, it'll have a collectibles or toys producer, and they all pool their money into a fund to create the animated content. And each one of them, each one of these financing arms will then take a, take the rights for the for the category that they specialize in. And the producer of the anime, anime being what what we think of in, in the United States or in the West as, 
as cartoons um, is a 2D or two-dimensional form of, of animation. And the two probably most successful and, and popular platforms that you can watch this on in the United States are Funimation or the Funimation Channel and Crunchyroll. And you're right, Stephen, that the demand for this content has grown significantly over the years. And in fact, a couple of years ago, Funimation was so popular that it was acquired by Sony and Crunchyroll subsequently was acquired by Time Warner, now AT&T Time Warner. So so the two, two of the biggest anime uh, streamers are now uh, in control of, of an enormous amount of that anime content that's coming out of Japan. But you're starting to see the fusion also of Japanese anime with Western titles and all of these being produced in this 2D form in Japan. And it's it's so powerful and so strong right now that I believe from last of what I read that those uh, studios, those production studios are booked for about two years. And what really put them over the top is when Netflix decided to get into the, the anime streaming business. So you can see titles on Netflix now, like say Ultraman, which has been a, a long time uh, IP from Japan or or many others on Netflix. So how would someone go about identifying, evaluating, choosing the right franchise for their marketplace? I think there are some hurdles there here, right? I mean, let's talk first about the hurdles. If you have, say, Funimation, which is owned by Sony, and you have Crunchyroll, which is owned by Time Warner, and then you have Netflix, right? These are the three biggest distributors for anime in the West. Is it tougher now for third-party entrepreneurs to go out and acquire uh, something they see in the anime space and bring it to the U.S. or Europe and sell it to Funimation, Crunchyroll, or Netflix? You know, I know, for example, with Netflix, they don't necessarily always want all the rights, right? So Netflix acts as a third party, but I would think in the case of Funimation, Crunchyroll, they're also looking for the merchandising and licensing rights. How does that work? Is there less opportunity because of the consolidation and distribution? Well, that's that's a great observation. But what, what's interesting is is all three of them operate um, in 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 a dissimilar way, and there are some some similarities, but there's more dissimilarities. And and honestly, part of what I do in my consulting practice is to help um, licensees uh, identify the these titles because the anime business, like like all entertainment, is really a fashion business. Uh, what's fashionable right now could be you know, less than, than, you know, really popular uh, a year from now. You know, for example, if you look at Star Wars, Star Wars is kind of in a fallow period right now because over the last few years, there's been such an enormous amount of content. And uh, so the, the, the expertise that I have is to, is to, help the, to help the licensees figure out which titles that they should consider by, by looking at their product category, looking at the demographics, you know, analyzing that and then giving them uh, giving them a uh, selection of options that that they can explore. And I did this recently for a client that that we narrowed it down to the about the top ten uh, titles that made sense for the product category that that client was in. And and then we went and started talking to those licensors to 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 determine who who was going to be uh, open to the concept of licensing in that category, what the terms were going to be, and so on. 
So obviously with the pandemic, everyone's at home, everyone's streaming. There's probably been a huge increase in demand for every property and for licensed products that emanate from those properties. You know, we know that brick and mortar retail is somewhat distressed, but certainly e-commerce online is still uh, chugging away. And I know, for example, Crunchyroll has its own store online, right, where consumers can watch shows on Crunchyroll and then they can just navigate right to the store and buy products on the show from the show. It does. And in fact, that store is doing really well. What's interesting is, is the categories of stuff that are selling. It's been my belief, and I've, I've seen this unfold you know, a lot in the last, say, five to seven years, that, that really uh, pop culture fans, they're, they're no different than fans of any, anything else. They want to have the title that they like in their life. And whether you're selling collectibles or toys or T-shirts, uh, yeah, there's a there's an audience for all of that, but now there's there's a very strong female audience for product that that has emerged in say the last seven years. There's now an audience that wants to buy things for the home. There's an audience of people that want to buy stuff for their car. And so when when you think about all the categories, and just to take this to the to the ultimate expansion, you mentioned uh, Hello Kitty. Hello Kitty has nearly 2,000 product categories. And I'm not saying that every anime should have all 2,000 categories of product developed, but there's a long distance between, you know, an anime Blu-ray or DVD and 2,000 categories. And there's a lot of stuff in between. And if you can, if you understand the title and you understand the demographics, the demand of the particular audience for a title, you can really create a nice piece of business in many of these categories. What you're talking about is really how our entire licensing ecosystem works. The consumer's affinity to a particular brand, whether it be anime, fashion, luxury, or even an automotive brand. As humans, it's in our nature to identify with certain attributes or characteristics these brands and entertainment represent, and then communicate them to the world through our acquisition of products that reflect our emotional connection to them. We see this intensely with fan-based licensing products when we attend a Comic-Con or Fan Expo, for example. I always found it fascinating to stand those long lines for seminars at Comic-Con because you learn so much by listening to the fans who are talking to someone in line. It's a perfect stranger, and yet they're finding that they have so much in common because they have this common property they love together. These are the type of situations that really bring humans together, and it's just it's just incredible to see. You know, we're able to forget our differences and, and find what we really enjoy in common, which is why I think post-pandemic, we're probably going to see significantly more of these fan expos grow. So let's talk a little bit about the current challenges that we're facing now during the pandemic. Clearly, the hardest hit area affected is the brick-and-mortar retail. We're seeing a lot of closures. But with what we're discussing specifically now, anime and manga, those type of properties, it seems that they're getting stronger. And so I'm wondering, what's the dichotomy? Well, the, the, you're right that things are getting stronger. The getting, getting the data and analyzing that data to kind of narrow it down is, continues to be a challenge. But the, it is out there. The, um, the strength of Netflix has really continued. If you look at, if you look at what's happening there, it's, it's kind of similar to the situation with Amazon and e-commerce. And in fact, I, I have a, a new project that I'm working on now with a comic called Usagi Ojimbo. It's been around for about 35 years. And this week we're announcing a, uh, a streaming deal with one of the biggest players in the business. So I'm going to be out there looking for licensees for this property just in the example that we've been discussing here today. And the challenges of the, the, the pandemic, of course, have in some strange way 
given me even more business than I had before because of the the network that I have. And the retailers, the distributors, the licensors, you know, just like us, they can't travel. And uh, they probably aren't going to be able to travel for some time. So the getting, you know, cultivating those relationships, which I did, and now pulling those people together into different new relationships and new opportunities is something that I'm really enjoying, you know, using my strong belief in, in connecting people, I can do good things to uh, for my friends. And today it was announced that that one of the stars of, uh, of that movie, Jerry Maguire, had passed. And it, I was thinking about that movie and how I really like that character. Um, I think he's called Dickie Fox, the veteran agent that Tom Cruise learns from. And he starts talking about what the secret to success is. And and essentially he's and I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, he loves his life. He loves his wife. And in addition to that, you know, I just want to add that uh, if you can help your friends to do these types of things, even in, in, in times as difficult as this, it's something that I'm a real believer in. Help me to help you, right, John? That's right. We are actually, we are actually at the end of our podcast. So I want to thank our guest, John Parker from Potencio Development, for uh, for your wonderful participation in today's podcast. And I look forward to our continued long relationship, John. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Thanks to all for listening.